Well, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2 today. As we begin, I want to start off with a question. And the question I want to ask is, what gives you a pleasure? Uh, for some of us, we might answer by saying, what gives me pleasure is uh, playing sports. When I'm out with my friends and I'm playing volleyball, I'm playing soccer, I'm playing basketball, whatever sport it might be, you say, that's something that gives me immense joy and immense pleasure. For others of us, if I were to ask what gives you pleasure, you might say, I find pleasure in my work. I find pleasure in what I do. I love going to work early. I love tackling the things that I have to do. And I love using the gifts that God has given to me. That gives me a great pleasure. Others of us may say what gives me great pleasure is just being around the people I love. When I'm out hanging out with friends, when I'm doing a, a, a gathering together with uh, my family, and we're all having this time of celebration, we're having a time of feasting together, that gives me great joy. And maybe some of you are saying, well, all of these things give me pleasure, and I hope they do. Uh, doing what pleases you is a great joy, isn't it? When you find what you love to do, when you find people that you love to be around, it is a great joy to find pleasure in these things. And how awesome it is for us as God's people to know that we have a God who is not against pleasure, who has designed so many pleasures. Actually, in heaven, we will experience pleasure forevermore. That's the nature of our God, and some Christians like to think of Christianity as a doom and gloom type of Christianity as we walk throughout this earth. But John Piper and others have done a lot to help show us that the word actually teaches, no, there is great pleasure in following after the ways of God. But we know that our lives are not pleasure from morning to evening, are they? We have a problem because of our sin that has twisted our desires and made us seek things that are pleasurable but only to the flesh. Pleasurable because of the sin that is within us. And so this makes many of the pleasures that we do actually wrong pleasures. And we also know that living our lives here down on earth on this side of eternity is actually not all that pleasurable. There's a lot of difficulties. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of pain and a lot of turmoil and tribulation that we face in this world. And yet, what I want to present to you today is how there is a great pleasure in following not after our own pleasures, though God gives those too, but after the pleasure of God himself. We see here Paul is writing the book of Philippians in a jail cell. And he is anticipating that he soon may have to pour out his life, give it as an offering. In other words, be put to death for the sake of the gospel. And yet he says in this letter that he is rejoicing and he is joyful and he is glad. Because though he may not be experiencing earthly comforts and earthly pleasures, he knows he is doing the pleasure of the God of the universe. And that gives his soul great pleasure. And might I suggest that if you follow the path of God, if you go down these paths of righteousness, if you do his pleasure, you too will find there is great pleasure there to be found, though it includes aches and it includes pains and struggles in this world too. 
But there is pleasure to be found down the path of God's pleasure. And today I want to see how we can live lives for his pleasure. So Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 12, and we'll make our way down to verse 17. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So may God be pleased to work in our hearts today through the preaching of his word. I want us to see three things as we make our way through this text. One, how lives that are lived for his pleasure, our lives are working out our salvation in fear and in trembling. Two, they are lives that are lived as shining stars in the midst of a dark world. And three, how they are lives that are holding fast to the words of life that are presented in Jesus Christ. And these are our three points as we make our way through the text. So let's begin with seeing how God calls us to work out our salvation for his pleasure. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Many of us, if we've grown up in these Reformed churches and we've heard the points of Calvinism that we have, many of us can have our ears perk up when we hear these words, we are to work out our salvation. We say, what does this idea of working have to do with salvation? We know we can't work our way to salvation. We can't merit our salvation. Why does Paul say, work out your salvation? And if you follow the logic of the text, you'll see that Paul is quickly tying this together with the work of God in you. You see, this is not your work ultimately. Ultimately, this is God who is working in you. And Paul is just calling us to work out what God is working in. You see, the Christian life has these high callings to it. We are called to run the race. We are called to sweat. We are called to toil. We are called to work. But we must realize the power and the energy and the vitality we need to do these things are all given by God himself pouring it into us. That's what Paul himself confessed. Look at how he describes his work. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, By the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, it was not in vain, 
but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet, Paul, are you saying you're working for this? No, no, no. Yet, not I, but it is the grace of God which was with me. God calls to work out what he has worked in us. So as Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, grace all-sufficient dwells in you, believer. There is a living well within you springing up. Use the bucket then. Keep on drawing. You will never, ever exhaust the well within you. Paul says that God is working in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. That means he gives us the motivation and he gives us the power to do it. And sometimes we can lack in either one of these categories, right? When we're dealing with sin, when we're dealing with the struggles in our lives, sometimes we lack the motivation. But God is able to give a a multitude of reasons for why we should live lives of holiness. He's able to show us how he's able to give us the power we need through his Holy Spirit to live lives that are victorious. He's able to give us all the evidence, all the reasons that we need to actually get the engine running so that we are motivated to do his will. But not only does he motivate us for this will, but he also empowers us then to do it. It's both to will and to do. Because so many things, all of the things that God calls us to do, whether it's living lives of obedience, whether it's proclaiming the gospel, cannot be done in human strength and in human power. We need a power that is beyond all of this. And so the language that Paul uses is God himself is working in you. Which is fascinating because the term he is using for working here is the very same term that God uses when he speaks of raising up his son. That he worked that, that type of power in the resurrection. So Paul is saying that this work that God is doing is something supernatural. It's beyond the work of a Samson. It's beyond the work of a Hercules or a Superman for that matter. Because this is a supernatural work. It's something only God himself is able to do. And he's willing to do this in us, to give us the power to do the things he requires us to do. And so that's why we studied in Pentecost, he sent his spirit who is living in us. And good news is when the Holy Spirit came to dwell in our temple, in our bodies, in our houses... He didn't just go and find the nearest couch. He went to work. He is active within us to empower us to live these lives for his glory. And so then, Paul has us consider all that God pours into us. Then he calls us to live this out with a fear and a trembling. This is language that is used for the very presence of God. What Paul is calling us here to do is live in the presence of God. Because in his presence, there is indeed a fear and a trembling that is appropriate. Because we're coming before a king. In Psalm 2, we hear these words, we are to serve the Lord with fear, and we are to rejoice with trembling. Even the nations, when they heard of Israel, and the things God was doing in Israel, that his presence was among them, they understood that this is a God to fear and this is a God to tremble before. 
when they heard of how this God split up the Red Seas, when they heard of how this God had plagued the Egyptians, when they heard how this God had marched them through the wilderness and then through the the, the Jordan River and then through uh, Jericho and toppling the walls, you know what happened to the nations? It says their hearts melted within them. They feared, they trembled before this God because they knew that this God was coming against them as an enemy. We fear and tremble not because God is our enemy. No, God is on our side. But we fear and tremble because we see just how great and awesome and majestic and glorious he is. We understand he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he speaks his word, it roars in our presence. And so we fear and we tremble before the might and the majesty of the king of all kings. And you can tell that Paul is focusing in on the presence of God and the difference this ought to make for our lives because Paul is saying, I'm going to be absent. I'm over here in jail. I might not even be around much longer. I might have to give myself and my life up for the cause of the gospel. But don't forget that God never leaves you. He never forsakes you. You are always living before his face, quorum Deo. And so we have reason to fear and to tremble. Maybe parents understand this with their children when they're dealing with their children. When they're around, there's a difference it makes on the obedience of your children, doesn't it? And when you got to go out for groceries or you got to go out for a little time to do something, there's a little fear that creeps into your mind about what chaos is going to ensue in the time that you are away. And Paul is showing us here that God is ever among us. He is ever present. And what a motivation this ought to be for our obedience. That we look at who we serve, we look at this king, We see the power that he's able to give. We live before his face, wanting to see his smile upon our lives. And mainly what Paul is showing here is how God's presence ought to affect our obedience. How it ought to make us work out the salvation, both to will and to do what he calls us to do. To walk down the paths of righteousness. And so as we consider this text, an obvious application is just to ask ourselves, if we have been desiring to live before the face of God and for his pleasure, both to will and to do. We come into the new year. Many people make New Year's resolutions. I'm not sure if you're one of them. They make New Year's resolutions about what they're going to do in the new year. It's not a bad practice. It's a good practice. But oftentimes you hear, don't you, resolutions on diet, resolutions on on finances or resolutions on time that they're going to, to spend in rest and vacation or resolutions they may have in, in their business and in their company. But do we have resolutions to live for the glory of our king? Do we have resolutions to be in his word more this year? Do we have resolutions to come before his throne more often in prayer, beseeching this king of kings? Do we have resolutions to live for his pleasure and his glory? Are we trying to cut out sin? Are we trying to live lives of obedience? This is something that we should all be making goals in because this is something that God himself takes pleasure in doing in each one of you. 
And he wants us for each one of your lives. You want to know where God is at work, where God is getting his hands dirty. Paul says God is working right now on this project. That you might will and do his good pleasure. In other words, he is working on your sanctification to conform you into the image of Christ. This is what gives God a, 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 a supreme and joyful pleasure. So that you might walk in his ways. That's what God is working on. What an encouragement that is to us. So whether you're swinging a hammer or whether you're changing a diaper or whether you're struggling to sleep at night and you're tossing and turning, whatever you may find yourself doing, whether it be big or small, God wants you to do each and everything in a way that gives, that is according to his pleasure. You remember the story of Eric Little and that in that story of Chariots of Fire, in that movie, as he is running the races, as he is, he is using the gifts God has given him, do you remember how he described his experience of running? He said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Not my pleasure. I feel the pleasure of God himself on my life. I pray that each one of you would want that same pleasure of God on your life, that the King of all kings, the Father who looks down upon you, is smiling upon the way that you are living. What a joy it is to see that God is working in this category. Whether we find ourselves here today, and we are living in lives that are pursuing these paths of righteousness, or whether we find ourselves in a pit of slime today, whether we find ourselves going down the path of obedience, but we are exhausted and we are tired of running, to find that God himself is able both to give the, the, the motivation, the will, and he's able to empower us to do this for his glory, that this is where he is working, that even right now through the preaching of his word, he is taking pleasure to make you both to will and to do his good will. This is where God is at work. As we see these three professions today, we see these young men confessing Christ. What you are beholding is what Christ has worked in, now coming out of them. And it's hard not to imagine the smile of the God of the universe saying, this is my work, this is what I am doing amongst my people and my children in this day and in this age. This is the God we serve. The second thing we want to see together is how... God's um, good pleasure makes us live lives of obedience, but his good pleasure also makes us shine like the stars in the sky. Verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know, more and more we're having trouble seeing the night sky above us because of our cities and all the lighting that is going on. It causes what is called a light pollution. And it becomes harder and harder to see the skies above as that light forms like a cloud over our heads. And so if I wanted to show you uh, the glories of the stars above, where I would take you is to the darkest area I could find. Because where the sky is the darkest, that is where you will see the most lights from the skies above shining down. Paul says that they are living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. These are terms that would be used for the Israelites when they were in the 
uh, wilderness. And God was so displeased with the generation of Israelites they were living so wickedly that he said, I'm not going to take you into the promised land. And so they wandered around 40 years until every one of that generation had passed on. It was a crooked and wicked, perverse generation. And Paul is applying that then to his own day as he looked at the Roman world around him. He says, we're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. If you know your Roman history, you know that they were indeed a wicked and cruel empire. Seventy years before Christ would be born, there would be a man by the name of Spartacus who would lead a rebellion of, I believe, 6,000 slaves against the Roman Empire. Rome would take each of these slaves, kill the slaves, hang them on Roman crucifixes, line them up against one of the main highways in all of Rome so that everyone who passed down that highway might see the results of trying to rebel against Rome. It was brutal, it was cruel. Imagine going down one of our highways and seeing such a scene. The Roman time was extremely perverse. You can see in almost every um, epistle to the churches, there is issues between sexual conduct, sexual ethics, because it was basically thrown out the window at the time. They lived as they pleased, to please their own lusts and passions. It was twisted. It was wicked. Human slaves were also a huge part of the Roman Empire. As you read their histories, you can see they were exploited, used, abused, treated basically like commodities. It was a dark, dark time. As we look at our world today, can we say, it's any brighter? If we look at our own world today, I think we might say it's darker still. Sexual ethics is also thrown out of our window. People do whatever they please with whomever they please, whenever they please. It's all about their own passions and their own lusts. I was watching a movie called Sound of Freedom, and at the end of the movie, it gave a staggering statistic that human trafficking is one of the biggest industries in America Actually, sorry, it's one of the biggest industries in the world, and America has the highest amount going on. Staggering statistics. Ended the film by saying there's more slavery today than at any point in human history. Talking about sanctity of life, sometimes we look at the time of Rome and we see Herod killed all of these children in Bethlehem under two, some estimate around 144,000 children, an awful tragedy, a terrible tragedy. But did you know we kill approximately 73 million children every year because of abortion? It's a dark world. It's a very, very dark world. I've taken you to the darkness because God has called us here to shine like the stars. Look at verse 15. That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in this world. 
The amazing thing is the darkness of this world only amplifies the light of Christ that is in you. And Paul is saying not that you are, uh, you can become stars, but no, you are shining like the stars right now because you are united to Christ. Jesus would teach the very same thing in, his, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 13, he says these words, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Christ is the light of the world, and because you are united to Christ, it can say you are the light of this world because you are united to Christ, and Christ's light is bursting through you. Now, it is true that Jesus says you can put a basket on top of this light, that you can to use the analogy of the stars, have these dark spots on the stars that does not do well in the witness that we are giving. And two things, two dark spots that Paul points out that we can have that does not do well if we want to shine as stars in this world is to go around complaining and grumbling. You know, this is the language that would be used of Israel as they're following Moses again and again and they have all of these blessings What do we see them do? They would grumble and complain time and time again. So God would part the Red Seas. So God would rain down manna from the heavens. So God would take bitter waters and heal them and make them sweet. So God would lead them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So God would take them into the promised land and show them the great inheritance he had in store for them. But again and again, what is the response of Israel? They grumbled, they complained, they moaned, and they whimpered. And that's how they went throughout the world. Grace upon grace upon grace had been given to them, but they grumbled and they complained. You say, how could you do that, Israel? But then you look at your own life. And you read how God has treated us in his son in this new covenant. How in Jesus Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavens has been poured down upon us. We have received grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. Every mercy, every cause to give him praise and to give him glory. And yet how many of us do not struggle to go around whimpering and moaning and groaning? Paul says this is not befitting to us who are Christians. The nature of light is that it is warm and that it is joyful. And to go around complaining and grumbling, that's cold, that's clammy. That's going to cause a dark spot on your stars. So, Paul says this is not befitting us as Christians. No, what does the catechism say? We didn't read the catechism, but I'll read part of it. Forgot again. I need to put that in my notes a little bit more strongly. The Catechism says, What do we mean by his will being done? It's this. Grant that we and all men may deny our own will and without any murmuring obey your will, for it alone is good. And grant also that everyone may carry out the duties of his office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. Paul says, the Catechism says, It's not good to go around murmuring. No, we want to obey his will as the angels in heaven. We want to show the world that this light is a a warm light, an attractive light, a joyful light. 
And as we share that joy and that light of the gospel, that's what becomes attractive to the world around us. When they say there's something different about you guys, there's something strange about you guys. Our world seems so dark, but here I see a light shining through. You know, oftentimes we as Christians, when we look around at the society around us and we see how dark it is getting, we can become so, so discouraged. But Paul is showing us here that the darkness allows for the brilliance of the light to shine all the more clearly. Malcolm, is it Malcolm Muggeridge? Yes, Malcolm Muggeridge discovered this. He was a man who was an atheist who became a Christian later in life, and he wrote with a profound insight. God gave him such a profound insight into society. And he said these words in 1969 as he saw things were decaying. He said, let us then as Christians rejoice that we see around us on every hand the decay of the institutions and instruments of power. See intimations of empires falling to pieces, money in total disarray, dictators and parliamentarians alike nonplussed by the confusion and conflicts which encompass them. For it is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming, when every recourse this world offers, moral as well as material, has been explored to no effect, when in the shivering cold the last twig has been thrown on the fire, and in the gathering darkness every glimmer of light has finally flickered out, it's then that Christ's hand reaches out, sure and firm, and then Christ's words bring inexpressible comfort. Then his light shines brightest, abolishing the darkness forever. Christ is in you. Christ is the light that shines through us as Christians. And so we're, allowed, we're called to allow that light to shine through us, to be conduits of his mercy and his grace and his love. And that's a calling for all of us as Christians as we go out here today to be lights in this world. But what a great thing it is to be reminded of on this day of profession. To remind these three young men that though they might be growing up in a world and in a generation that is perverse and crooked and wicked, that though it might be a dark time in the world in their day and in their age, this is the time where their light can shine the brightest. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. The light conquers darkness. It doesn't become conquered by the, or sorry, darkness does not conquer the light. So if Christ is in you, you have great hope to be a shining beam of his glory in our day and in our age. Let's look at our third point together, holding fast to the words of life. It's God's good pleasure to make us live these lives of obedience. It's God's good pleasure to make us shine like the stars in the sky. It's God's good pleasure to cause us to hold fast to himself. Look at verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. 
Paul speaks of his sacrifice to the Philippian church. He says, I may be poured out like a drink offering upon you. The drink offering in the Old Testament was a final offering to be had. You had your meal offering, then your burnt offering, your peace offering, and then over all these different offerings would be poured out the drink offering. And it was a final offering that dedicated the whole of all the other sacrifices to God. And Paul is saying here, my life has been poured out. It's been a dedication to God himself. That's why I've been teaching. That's why I've been preaching. That's why I've been working night and day, willing to go through suffering and tribulation, to be battered out at sea, to be maligned, to be persecuted, to, yes, even perhaps be giving my life here at the end for the sake of the gospel. He's been pouring himself out. And he doesn't want to see the sacrifice that he has given for this Philippian church to be something that is in vain. And so he says to the Philippian church, I want you to hold fast to the words of life, not to Paul. I want you to hold fast to him who I've been presenting to you guys day in and day out. When I would tell you about the glories of the King of Kings, when we saw together how grace upon grace is given to us, when we saw all that Christ is, that he is indeed all in all, that from him and through him and to him are all things. When I presented before your eyes Christ crucified and it was him that you saw, I want you to hold on to him. That's the one that Paul says we need to cling to. You see, Paul is likely coming to the end of his race here. And he knows that he might be coming to the finish line very soon. And he doesn't want to cross that finish line and think back on all his work and all that time that he spent laboring and praying and preaching the word day in and day out. He doesn't want to think that was all in vain. But the people that he counseled, the people that he told the whole counsel of God, the people that he was in their midst day in and day out, he says, I want to see you all at the finish line. I want to see you there on the day of Christ. I want to be able to rejoice in you and have joy in you and say they have finished their race. They have run hard and they are here with me at the end. That's what's going to give Paul great joy. Not to say this is what I've done. This is what Paul has done. But this is what Christ has done in you. I want to be able to rejoice over your lives. We might be at different places in the race today. Some of us might be close to the end. Some of us might be just kicking it off. Some of us might be halfway through and we're tired and our legs are burning. And Paul is calling out as he's coming towards the end of the line and he's shouting out, lay hold of Christ, hold on to Christ. Don't let him go. It reminds you of the words of Peter, doesn't it? As Jesus would be talking to his disciples and he saw many of the crowds leaving him. What does Peter say? As Jesus would say, are you too going to leave? And Peter says, where shall we go? You have the words of life. It's only in you. And Paul is telling them to cling on to these words of life, to hold fast to the words of life. So wherever you go, Jacob or William or Clement, if you find yourself in another country, another land, if you find yourself beyond the seas, a different congregation, a different people, wherever you go, hold on to the words of life. Hold on, not to Paul, not to, not to your parents or your teachers or the people around you, but to the one they've all been pointing to, to Christ Jesus himself. For this is the one who has saved you. As you hold on to Christ, and as you cling on to Christ, what you'll find is that it's really him who's been holding on to you this entire time. 
just as we find as we're working out our salvation that really it was Christ who was working in us all along, so we will find that as we are holding on to the words of life, really it was Christ who was holding on to us this entire time. So this is why the Father wants us all to look at his Son, because it is his Son who contains the words of life. When Jesus showed up on the scene, the Father would literally shout from the heavens with a booming voice, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Because Jesus followed the law of God to the T. He never duffed. He never made a mistake. He never got a smudge or stain. To the jot and tittle every part of God's word, he obeyed perfectly. And so it gave his father a great delight. But there's more to this story. As we read in the book of Isaiah that the father was not just pleased because his son was obedient but because of the sacrifice his son would make. It says these staggering words in Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. The father would have to crush the son, would have to lay the sins of you on his back and pour out his eternal wrath on his son. Why? Because the passage goes on, when you, speaking of the Father, make his soul an offering for sin, then he shall see his offspring. In other words, in that offering, it would please God to bring thousands and millions of his own to himself. And these young men today can trust that they are part of that fruit if they have looked to the Savior themselves. And you know what? You can have that confidence too. Because it is this Father who is well pleased to work out this salvation in your hearts. It's this Father who is well pleased to present that salvation to the entire world. To gather those from the west and the east and the land beyond the seas to come to the feast at the table of our Lord. It is this Father who is well pleased to welcome you into heaven's gates. To say you finished the race. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the inheritance of eternal life. So come, would you come and let this Father work his pleasure in your hearts. All the Bible says you need to do is repent from your sins, to turn from your sins, and look to Jesus. And look to this beloved Son who is well-pleasing to his Father. And when you look at the sacrifice he made for you and believe that his blood has covered your sins, you too can be absolutely sure that the Father is well pleased in your life to accept you as a son and daughter because the Father is well pleased to accept this sacrifice as your own. So may God continue to work his good pleasure in and through us until the great day when our salvation shall be made complete and our Savior will be seen before our very eyes. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for how your presence has been here in a very real and tangible way today. We thank you, Lord, that you are working your good pleasure. We pray, Lord, that no matter who we are today, we would find that we have the smile of the God of the universe upon us because we have looked upon your Son and believed in your Son and his work has become our own. 
And so we pray today, Lord, that your countenance would shine upon us, that as we leave this building, we would know that our God is for us, that our God loves us, that our God accepts us because of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us now as we continue to give you praise to your name. In Jesus' name and for his glory and your pleasure, we pray. Amen.